Last week in our look at Nehemiah chapter 3, we observed the people of God in Jerusalem undertaking the massive building project of restoring the walls of their city. Other Jews came from surrounding towns and cities to help as well. Generally speaking, we looked beyond the well-documented details of the building project in an attempt to glean some principles that we could apply to our lives today, two and a half millennia after they were written. Isn't God's word wonderful? Here's a few principles we mind from the text. Firstly, when God's people are united and work together, there is no limit to what he can accomplish through them. Secondly, the work began at home. We are not prepared to go out with God's work until his work has begun at home, even in our very hearts. Finally, the work is focused around the gates of the city. I submitted to you that the gates of your heart or of your life are your eyes, your ears, and your mouth. And this is where we need to invite our great leader, Jesus Christ, to begin his work once we have given our lives to him. Today's text is very different in nature from last week's, whereas we were able to cover all 32 verses of chapter 3 last week, we will only cover six verses in chapter 4 today. Today's text is so densely packed that even at six verses, I'm sure we'll only begin to scratch the surface of everything there. So let's read Nehemiah chapter 4 and the first six verses. But it so happened, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Whatever they build, even if a fox goes up, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you. For they have provoked you to anger before the builders. So we built the wall and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had a mind to work. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that the light of your joy would be in this place with each one here today, that we would have eyes to see beyond what is happening in this physical world to the tremendous building project that you have going on in the world that is to come. Give us hearts to see the glory of Jesus Christ, the glory of the city that you are preparing for us. For it is soon that we will join you there, and we look forward to it every moment. As we look into your word this morning, I pray that you would open our eyes to your truth, 
that any dross that I add would be scraped away and that your truth would shine forth as pure gold. And thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. I've titled today's message, God's Work Will Go On. Sanballat and Tobiah attempt to discourage the workers. We see that in the first three verses. They begin to ramp up the opposition that they met Nehemiah with. When Sanballat and Tobiah first heard that there was a man that wanted to help the people of Jerusalem, they were deeply disturbed. We see that in chapter 2, verse 10. Then, when the work was about to begin, they used scorn and disparagement. We see that in chapter 2, verse 19. Now that the work had begun, they were furious and very indignant, the Bible says. Today's scripture lays out a natural human reaction that enemies display against the people of God. First, they are deeply disturbed. Next, they hurl scorn and mocking based on lies at God's people. Finally, when the progress continues, anger boils up and comes out as wrath. The nature of their attack is discouragement. And I am not going to pretend to be speaking to anyone but myself on this topic this morning, because I definitely, in my weakness, feel discouraged. To begin with, Sanballat and Tobiah surround themselves with like-minded supporters to strengthen their resolve <clears throat> and appear as an intimidating majority. Enemies of God love to surround themselves with other evil men, to laugh at their scorn, and to appear strong in order to hide their cowardice. Then they use a disparaging, sarcastic tone to mock the Jews. First, they call them feeble. Then they ask a series of mocking questions about how they plan to go on building their wall. First question they ask, will they fortify themselves? English translators have had a notoriously difficult time translating this question. The Hebrew word for fortify can be understood in a number of different ways. It is also used in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 11. So let's briefly look at that verse to help us. Nehemiah 13, 11, Nehemiah speaking. So I contended with the rulers and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And that's the same word there, forsaken. And I gathered them together and set them in their place. So the word fortify and the word forsaken are the same word in the original there. So it's, you can see that it's a difficult word to translate. But through prayer and much thought, it seems to me that this first question by Sanballat means something like, do they think they can make themselves independent? Do they think they can free themselves from Persian control? The, the attitude behind it is like, go ahead and build your little wall. Artaxerxes will just come and smash it down again anyway. He is trying to tell God's people that they are puny and weak, and nothing they can do is going to change any of that. 
How often do we as Christians get discouraged by this same attack? You Christians are puny and weak. And if you think you can stand up to the Roman Empire, or Islam, or communist China, or North Korean dictator, or a Canadian dictator for that matter, you will fall. But the Roman Empire fell and has crumbled into the dustbin of history and Christianity lives on. Muslims in record numbers are embracing Jesus Christ as savior. Long after communist China, North Korea, and even Canada have dissolved into ash, should the Lord Jesus Christ tarry, Christianity will live on and Christians will worship Jesus as Lord. If truth is your ally, no amount of time will diminish your strength. If truth is your enemy, no amount of strength will preserve your time. And in the end, the one who said, I am the truth, will come and consume everything that isn't founded on him, making it nothing. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13 reads, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. That's some serious global warming. When asked how a person can begin to get victory over corrupt and socialistic government, the Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who himself spent time in a Russian gulag, said this, one word of truth outweighs the world. The second question they ask is, will they sacrifice? Do they expect God to miraculously build the walls because they kill some animals for him? Will they pray the walls up? What kind of religious ceremonies will they perform to get those walls in place? You can almost hear the sneering tone in this question, but it reveals several things about God's enemies. Number one, they have no idea what God is capable of. They don't know him and they don't fear him. How difficult would it truly be for the God that spoke the universe into existence to put some walls up around Jerusalem. Number two, they don't understand the ways of God as he's, he has revealed them in history and in his word. Sometimes God shows his might and power by getting his servants to step aside and watch him work. He did this with Moses in Egypt and at the Red Sea. He did this with Elijah when fire came from heaven and consumed his offering before all the people. And he did this with Jesus at the resurrection. Sometimes 
God asks his people to act in obedience to his commands to accomplish his will. He did this with Joshua as they moved into the promised land. And he did this with Zerubbabel when he rebuilt the temple. We are not privy to the inner counsels of the Almighty. Our job is to be obedient. To show you how common this tactic of the enemy is, I want to bring up one very recent example to show you how deeply rooted Satan's deceptions can be even in the minds of leaders today. When coronavirus deaths were beginning to level out in New York State, many Christian men and women openly thanked the Lord for hearing their prayer and bringing them a degree of relief. Then, in anger, Governor Andrew Cuomo stood up and said in a press conference, the number is down because we brought the number down. God did not do that. Destiny did not do that. Faith did not do that. A lot of pain and suffering did that. This is precisely the same tactic Satan used through Sanballat against God's people here in Nehemiah chapter 4. Like Sanballat, Governor Cuomo in his pride doesn't know God, doesn't fear God, and doesn't understand God's revealed word or will. The final question that we'll look at is this. Will they finish up in a day? This attack is a direct attack on any hope Nehemiah and the builders might have. In essence, Sanballat is saying, do you have any idea of the immensity of the project you are undertaking? You can go ahead and start, but you'll never finish. As an example, this is what the pro-life fight can seem like at times, as men and women try to stop the murder of babies. Look, Nehemiah, in Canada, abortion has killed more than 4 million preborn babies since 1969. Today in Canada, a baby is murdered in the womb on average every seven minutes. This battle is too big for you puny, weak Christians. Even more frequently, we have personal battles. That particular pet sin of yours has had victory over you for 20 or 30 or 40 years. Do you have any idea what kind of opponent you are taking on? It's too big to be conquered. It would be easier to just give up. But none of this takes into account that God is involved. Protecting the innocent and vulnerable is the Lord's work. Victory over sin is the Lord's work. Hope is the Lord's work. Your job is to be obedient and submit in faith to Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Discouragement can be such a powerful weapon because it is the opposite of hope. Hope looks forward to the victory that God has promised for every believer in Jesus Christ. Hope looks to Christ. 
Discouragement looks at the past defeats and the insurmountable task right in front of you with all its obstacles. In some almost tangible sense, you as a believer get to choose whether you set your eyes on hope or discouragement. Discouragement will always attack, but hope will always win. Choose carefully. God's enemies failed to recognize that the people were building God's wall. After Sanballat is finished his mocking, Tobiah starts up and says something very revealing. He calls the wall their stone wall, referring to the Jews. He thought this was the Jews' stone wall, but he was wrong. This was God's stone wall. And as such, no fox went up on it and made it fall down. It didn't come down until God allowed it to come down five centuries later when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in the year 70 after that part of his prophetic plan was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I love to compare Tobiah's statement about reviving the stones with Christ's statement 450 years later. Tobiah asks whether the stones would be revived out of the rubbish. Even the weakened, burnt stones. Centuries later, when Jesus Christ was entering Jerusalem and many Jews were upset that the people were crying out to him as the son of David, Jesus' enemies wanted the people to be quiet. What was Christ's response? I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Those are some seriously revived stones. What about Peter, several decades later, whose very name means stone? If anyone ever was a revived stone, it would be the Apostle Peter. He wrote, Coming to the Lord Jesus as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, through Jesus Christ. I couldn't help but think of these scriptures when I read Tobiah's mocking words. Now let's briefly look at Nehemiah's following prayer in verses 4 and 5, and then the conclusion of today's passage in verse 6. Nehemiah comes against the discouraging attack with prayer. It was his first line of defense. For Nehemiah, as it ought to be for us, prayer was a first resource, not a last resort. How often do we wait until we are desperate before we approach the throne of grace in prayer? When times of opposition come, God wants us to rely on him. And the purest way of expressing our reliance on God is through prayer. Nehemiah then 
asks God to battle their enemies. This prayer seems pretty tough, but I think it is entirely appropriate. I've heard Christians say, even recently, that prayers like this one or the prayers in the Psalms when the psalmist is asking God to take vengeance are inappropriate because Christ prayed, Father, forgive them. I want you to listen very closely now because I don't want you to misunderstand me. There are some very important things to remember about prayers like this one offered up by Nehemiah. There is more to Christ's prayer than, Father, forgive them. What Jesus actually prayed was, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. The soldiers surrounding the cross were acting on orders from their superiors in accordance with Roman law. The government had the right to take the life of a person convicted of certain crimes, and Jesus knew this. He wrote it later through Paul in Romans 13. These soldiers were unaware of the mass, massive cosmic event that they were involved in here. They probably knew nothing of the details of the mock trial. All they knew was that this man was delivered to them as a criminal and was to be crucified. They did not know that they were putting to death the Lord of glory. On the other hand, Sanballat and Tobiah and their ilk had every opportunity to know that they were opposing God with their words and actions. We must never forget that vengeance belongs to the Lord. Nehemiah, or the psalmist, whoever prays these types of prayers, did not pray that God would give them vengeance on their enemies, but that God would take vengeance. In no way, under any circumstance, in my opinion, are Christians to take personal revenge for a wrong done to them. Again, looking to the perfect example of Jesus Christ, when he stood before Pilate and knew that he was about to be physically tortured to death, he said these words, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now, my kingdom is not from here. Jesus did not fight back, and he knew his followers wouldn't either. But, 40 years later, the Romans besieged Jerusalem and destroyed it, along with the temple, when God removed his hand of protection. And those Jewish authorities, those who survived at least, had their power stripped from them, and it has not been restored for nearly 2,000 years now. Ideas are to be combated, not people. Vengeance is never to be sought for personal wrongs. The kind of prayer offered by Nehemiah is brought against those that are opposing God and his work. This is the kind of prayer that I have begun to offer against some of our political leaders, not because they have done me any personal harm, but because they oppose the clear teaching of the Word of God. And I encourage you to do the same. If you would like your children and your grandchildren to enjoy the kinds of freedoms that you have enjoyed as a believer in Jesus Christ. I will never take 
any personal action against leaders because Christ never took any personal action against the corrupt leaders of his time. But at every opportunity, I will speak truth against ideas that are not founded in Scripture. The goal is that when the gospel begins to become the prevailing truth in any society, suffering in that society begins to decline because the gospel and the word of God from which we learn it align perfectly with reality. Just look at how Christianity's ideas transform practices in ancient Rome, like the gladiator games, slavery, marriage relationships, economics, the value of children and the elderly, and the list could go on and on. On the other hand, the danger of comfort can be a waning reliance on God as our needs and even our wants can be provided by money rather than by faith. In part, God's solution is that we give to those in need out of our abundance to counteract the danger of materialism. The final verse for today, Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 6. A mind to work is an undervalued blessing. Satan wants to make us feel defeated or passive or self-focused or even discouraged. So find something you can and will do. Ask the Lord for a mind to work. Rest your spirit in Christ and get your body doing something. Then watch your entire outlook on life brighten. One thing that never ceases to amaze me is how much more I need to work when I feel like it the very least. Several years ago, I was suffering from crippling depression. I've always, for as long as I can remember, suffered from these types of issues, and maybe that's why I'm feeling the oppression in our society so keenly now. Even the thought of getting out of bed was too much for me to handle. Some of you know exactly what I was going through. I wish that I could say I got out of bed anyway and went to work. But sometimes I didn't. By the grace of the Lord and the encouragement of my family, I did almost always get up and go. And sometimes it was so hard. It was minus 30, and I knew I'd be working outside for the next 10 or 11 hours. I don't know how I got through many of those days, but somehow I did. And I'm suspicious that if I would have given in and just wrapped myself back in my blankets until I felt better, I never would have felt better or it would have taken much longer. Part of the reason God created us is to work, to join with him in the fruitful production of life. If we don't work, we have a deep sense of being unfulfilled and unproductive. Some have wrongly said that work was a result of the curse of sin back in the garden, but this is simply not true. God told Adam and Eve to tend the garden before they ever sinned. We need to work, and we need to choose to be joyful in it. 
Nehemiah's prayer was not immediately answered. Nehemiah didn't pray and sit and wait for God to smite his enemies. He and the people reminded themselves of the task God had given them and returned to building. I'd like to close today with a passage from Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 28. I know there's a lot more going on in this parable than the simple principle I hope you pick up in relationship to our passage in Nehemiah. But it's worth the time to read regardless. As the disciples heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. Just want to pause here. I looked up. In today's currency, a mina is about $1,000. So when it says mina, think grand. He gave them ten grand. Anyway, I'll continue. Um, Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. And I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem to prepare to take his kingdom. The parables of Jesus are so powerful, aren't they? I love the way the King James puts what the nobleman said to his servants. Occupy till I come. Occupy till I come. Folks, we need to be busy about the Lord's work. Time is running short. 
Maybe it'll be 200 years. Maybe it'll be two years. Maybe it'll be two weeks. We don't know. Time is running short. We need to occupy till he comes. Because when he comes and calls us home, all of the discouragement is gone. And our faith is turned to joy. So let us look forward to the day of his coming. Let's pray together as we close. Father in heaven, thank you that you have met with us here this morning. Thank you for each person that is here. Thank you that you have given us your word. That your word is true. That it is unshaking and unwavering. That we can anchor our hearts to it. We can anchor our lives to it. We can anchor our minds to it and know that they are absolutely secure, whatever might come. I pray this morning that you would bring the light of Christmas joy to our community, that people would begin to feel the freedom that they already have in Christ and that it would bring joy. I pray that people would stand up against lies and speak truth. I pray that we would love one another, that you would unite us in love, that we would together as a Christian community, lift up the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as the only hope left for a dark and dying world. Father, it can be overwhelming, just as we looked in our scripture today. Sometimes the problems seem so huge that it's easier to just say, I give up. And I have to confess myself this week, there were times that I felt like just giving up. But I ask that you would infuse new life into the Christian community here and in British Columbia and in Canada and around the world. That we would, with the coming Advent season, where we celebrate the light coming into the world, that it would drive out the darkness that is trying to oppress our hearts and minds. Bring us your liberty, we pray, Lord. Cause truth to reign in our society once again. Cast those down that refuse to acknowledge your word as truth and raise up men and women that seek to serve you, that seek to honor your word, and that seek to tell the rest of us the truth. Help us to go from this place encouraged, not discouraged, to go in hope, not in fear, to go in joy, not in despair. And we need this reminder every moment we are so weak. Thank you for this time together. I'm just so blessed that these handful of people have joined us this morning. You know how much it has lifted my spirits. I pray that you would bless them as a result. Go with us from this place by the presence of your spirit. Encourage each one of us in Jesus' name. Amen.